Well, that's pretty fancy. We've got some talented people here at Oak Ridge Baptist Church. That's, uh, for those of you joining us on Facebook Live, uh, welcome to Pastor's Corner Live. For those of you that are here tonight, welcome you as well. There's some uh, study notes there for you in the back. If you've not had the opportunity to pick one of those up, be sure and do that and grab your Bibles tonight. We'll be once again in the book of 1 Peter. I don't know if you've ever heard the story about um, how to boil a live frog. Has anybody ever heard that before? Um, I've heard it used in motivational speeches. I've heard it used in a church setting and kind of the, the, the premises or the theory goes that you, if you take a live frog and you put it in a pot of boiling water, then that frog is going to jump out immediately because it knows that's not good for him. But if you take a live frog and you put him in a pot of water and you just gradually heat the water up just a little bit, just a few degrees at a time that the frog will sit there and he'll become acclimatized or acclimated uh, to the water that's around him and he won't even notice that the water's getting hot to the point that it actually boils him alive. Now, I don't know if that's truth or not or if that's a fable. I was gonna try it today to tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, but I figured I would get some protected frog that I did not know anything about and I would tell you and somebody would turn me into PETA and I'd have like this major fine that I'd have to pay. So I did a little bit of research and I said, I wonder if this is really fact or it's fable. And what I determined, I believe it's a fable. Uh, if we took a, a frog and you take one and, and you drop it in a pot of boiling water, that sucker's going to die. I'm just telling you, I believe that's the way it is. If you take an egg and it's boiling water and you open the egg, you know, the minute that the membranes and everything hit the hot water, they begin to coagulate and they begin to turn hard. And I think that's what would happen. I know that's what happens in a frying pan. Amen. We know that's what happens, but I'm not sure. But then you take this idea of putting a live frog in a pot of water and then gradually, very slowly heating that pot of water up just a couple of degrees at a time. Uh, would a frog sit there? And probably not because animals have a thing called critical thermal maxima. And what that, that means is that they have something inside of them that regulates when they know that the temperature is not good. They need to get out of the heat. They need to get out of the sun. They need to warm up. And it causes them to instinctively take action. The closest thing I can relate that to is yesterday I was eating some tortilla chips and I started to eat a tortilla chip and it was really dry and I went to swallow it. I wasn't choking. I wasn't about to die, but it kind of got stuck and my body instantaneously of its own accord, it just kind of started convulsing, kind of like a hiccup. My body knew something is just not right. We need to do something here. So I got a glass of water and everything was fine. That's, I believe that's a good example of what happens. I'm not saying I'm an animal, but animals have something like that, that, that creates that in there. But I, I do believe it's a fable. But every time that I've heard this story shared or every time I've heard this story talked about, the person's trying to illustrate that we have this growing immorality in our society today. And because Christians have allowed themselves to be acclimated slowly over time, then they kind of just take what's going on around them and not really do anything about it. And the byproduct of that is, is that society is becoming more hostile. It's becoming more um, unfavorable about the idea of Christianity and the absolute truths that we find in scripture. And though this may be a fable, this illustration may not be true. I agree with the precept or the presupposition that those that use this are trying to communicate. Let me give you an example. If the enemies of Christianity, let's say back in the 1940s or the 1950s, maybe the early 1960s, if they would have mounted a hard line frontal assault against Christianity, 
If they would have come in the 1940s and said, no way, shape, form, or fashion are you going to have any nativity scenes on a courthouse lawn. In the 1950s, if they would have come and said, we're going to extract the Ten Commandments out of any government buildings because we believe it's against the Constitution. Or, or, or if during the early part of the 1960s, if there would have been a push to legalize same-sex marriages, there would have been this robust, there would have been this united front amongst Americans at large against something like that and it would not have worked. And so what the enemy has done is he's just gradually over time changed the degree of culture. He's changed the degree of society, not in a great way, but just gradually over time. And all you have to do is go back and look at TV shows. Go back and look at the things starting in the middle 1960s and early 1970s that we began to giggle about. It was something we never talked about before, but then they kind of introduced it and we began to giggle about it. And we began to think it wasn't so bad. And another degree was turned up and another degree was turned up and another degree was turned up to the point that we find that we're at the point of realizing that death is imminent to the life of the many Christians impact, to the life of the church, to the life of many things, because our culture, even Christians have become so acclimated to the moral culture that they're blending into that instead of standing up against that. In the 1970s, there was a writer by the name of Francis Schaeffer, a theologian, and he noticed that the temperature of the water in society was starting to heat up when it comes to the idea of immorality and the things that we were standing. So he wrote a book that's it's entitled, How Should We Then Live? The Rise and Decline of Western Thought and Culture. I want to read two excerpts from that book. Listen carefully. He said, in ancient Israel, when the nation had turned from God and from his truth, And commands as given in scripture, the prophet Jeremiah cried out that there was death in the city. He was speaking not only of physical death in Jerusalem, but also of a wider death. Because Jewish society of that day had turned from what God had given them in the scripture, there was death in the polis, and he means by that there's death in the total culture, in the total society. He says in our era, so we're in the 1970s at this time, sociologically, man destroyed the base which gave him the possibility of freedoms without chaos. Humanists have been determined to beat to death the knowledge of God and the knowledge that God has been silent. But yet he has spoken in the Bible and through Christ. They've been determined to do this, even though the death of values has come with the death of of knowledge. And what he goes on to say in this book and the things he goes on to ex- exp- explain is that by us allowing this water to change around us, for us to stand by as, as morality and the things that are going on around us and us becoming acclimated to that instead of standing up against it, then we see, we see this depravity and this decadence and this love of violence just simply for violence sake that's so prevalent in our society to this. And so all of this has helped perpetuate This hostility toward Christianity, this ideology and this understanding of accepting things and and kind of putting our hands in the pocket and saying, well, there's really nothing that we can do about it. It's just the direction that society is going in. As a result of that, then that's why we're studying the passage that we are in first Peter. We're taking this study of first Peter, this this writing that Peter has to a group of Christians that are living in a society that sees this cultural shift. 
that are seeing persecution and things began to happen against their belief of who Jesus Christ and the difference that he has made. And he said, hey, you've got two choices to make in the midst of the boiling water that you find yourself. You can either be bitter about it or you can make a a determination and a decision to live better. That's a choice that you have to make. And the first, if you're just going to live bitter, you're going to lose your influence with those that haven't been caught in the hot water yet. So what we ought to do is choose to to live better and live by godly principles so that we can have an impact on others. And so the environment in which Peter wrote this book, as we've seen so far, this letter is some 2,000 years ago, but it's in a culture that's hostile to the teachings and the principles of Christ. And so it's just as applicable to you and I today as it was then. And so tonight our theme is, or our text is going to be very familiar to you. We're in the passage of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. That should resonate with many of you, right? Last year our theme was what? Not this year. Our theme this year is living a legacy. And what's our theme passage? Philippians chapter 3, 12 through 16. Last year, our focal theme was, or our theme was unashamed. Me, I'm going to be unashamed. And our focal passage was 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. So I know we've been quoting our theme passage for this year, but is there anybody that can quote our theme passage from last year? Now, now, you got it, Allison? Go. Very good. Good job. Excellent. Allison's uh, one of the members of our Belize team that's going to be headed over to our mission trip over there. And so they've been challenged to memorize those passages of Scripture. So, so great job. So we're familiar with this passage of Scripture. We've kind of looked at it last year to make sure. But that's where we are in our study in First Peter. So let's pick that up. And in First Peter, this section of, the, of uh, his letter that we find, basically we find five principles that will help us live better and not bitter as we begin to notice the water heating up around us. As we begin to see culture changing, here's some principles that he gives us so that we can live bitter or better and not bitter. And the first principle that he introduced to us is let's be passionate about doing good. Let's be passionate about doing good. Look at verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Now, this is one of those rhetorical questions. Peter's been writing since chapter one and verse one. He's been rocking right along. And now after everything that he's shared up to this point, he comes to this place and he says, hey, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? I, I, I want to emphatically cause you to kind of think about something, if you will. And basically what he's saying is it's it's pretty unusual for a person to be mean-spirited are to persecute a person that's really just a good person. Um, not, not that there might not be some that would do that, but by and large, when, when a person just gets to know another person that's just, just a good person, it's pretty hard for them to persecute them. It's pretty hard for them to be difficult against them. And so when a Christian is zealous, and that literally means when a, when a, when a Christian is intense, about doing good. They're not doing it to be saved. We know what the Bible says. It says not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, does he save us? How? By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. A a Christian, he's writing to Christians that are being persecuted for their faith. He's saying, I want you to be zealous. I want you to be adamant. I want you to be excited to do good things, not to be saved, but as a result of your salvation, he said, I I want you to be generous. I want you to be unselfish. I want you to be kind. I want you to be thoughtful. And I want you to be just as passionate 
about doing those things in your life as Mick Lovely is about the University of Michigan or as much as Ted Gregson is about the University of Texas or just as much as Mike Free is about the University of Alabama. You want to get them excited about something? Start talking about their college football team or for those of you that are Texan fans. And I mean, it just takes that long for somebody to just kind of mention, you know, what? And you go, yeah, JG. And I was, no, I'm at the what in the light bulb I've got to replace. You know, you're just so caught up in everything. Thing. He's saying that's the way we should be as Christians in this world that is beginning to heat up around us. We need to be zealous for what is good. We need to be excited about doing good. That's the driving force. It should be a driving force in the Christian's life because it's much more difficult for a person to criticize Christianity and to look down on Christianity if a person, a Christian, is living in a good manner. And the byproduct of this is the more that we live good, the more that we live generous, the more that we live in a way that is beneficial to others, the more that we show the love of Jesus in a practical way, then the things that are causing society to heat up around us, those things begin to lack interest. They begin to not be things that we, that we savor or that we enjoy as much because we realize the pain and the hurt and the sorrow. And the other thing that it does is as Christians live the way that the Bible talks about and we live in order to be good to other people, there's less rocks that are laying around our life for people to pick up and chunk at us. So oftentimes as Christians, we understand the way we should live and the things that we should be doing, but we don't always do that. And when we don't, then that gives those that are against the things of God the opportunity to throw darts at or to, or, or to cause things to be said about God and about Christianity and those things. And what they don't realize is that we're humans. We make mistakes. When, when we're saved, we're not perfect. We're, we still struggle with things that are in our life. But the more that we strive to do good, the more that we strive to do the things that we know that would be things that people would notice different about us instead of blending in with the society around us, it gives us the opportunity to give less ammunitions for those to attack. So when you're zealous, when you bless and enhance the life of others in whatever way that you're able Again, when you show the love of Jesus in a practical way, it has this powerful effect of neutralizing the animosity that someone has against Christianity. I I may not like Christianity. I may not agree with it. But man, Rebecca, she's just always so kind and she's always so considerate. And and, and when I go out, I always run into the Lukeys and they just they just they're just good people. There's just something about them. I cannot hate them, you know, and this is what I, I want to show you a video tonight that I think really personifies what I'm trying to get at. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the, the comedic group Penn and Teller. They've been around since like the 70s and in, in Las Vegas. And so uh, Penn Gillette is is one of those. I, I came to know him through The Apprentice when he was on The Apprentice. And I mean, I just kind of liked the guy. He he was funny. He was charismatic. He he raised all this money for these good things when he was on that show. And then I come to find out that he's an atheist and that he really he he, he does, doesn't believe he, he, in God in any way, shape, form or fashion. He's oftentimes the, the MC at the annual atheist convention that's held every year. And then many of you may have seen it. If not, I hope this will kind of help you understand what I'm talking about tonight. Uh, he had this really cool event happen to one of his shows a few years ago. And on his own accord, nobody asked him to do it. He just picked up his phone and he made a recording of this interaction that he had 
with this Christian, and he wanted to post it for everybody else to see. So take a look at this video. to talk to you about this. Uh, I get home from the show, and at the end of the show, as I've mentioned before, we go out and we, uh, we talk to folks and, you know, sign an occasional autograph and shake hands and so on. And there was one guy waiting over to the side in the, um, what I call the hover position, after I was all done. Big guy, probably about my age. Big guy. And, um, he had been the, um, the guy who has uh, picks the joke during our psychic comedian section of the show. Uh, so he had the props from that in his hand because we'd give those away. He had the, uh, the joke book and the, and the envelope and the paper and stuff. If you haven't seen the live show, that's uh, not worth explaining. But he had props from the show that we'd given him from the night before. Uh, he wasn't the guy that night. And he walked over to me and he said... Um, I was here last night at the show, and uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it. I wanted. He was very complimentary about my use of language and um, complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff. No reason to go into it. He said nice stuff. And then he said, "I brought this for you," and he handed me a uh, Gideon Pocket Edition. Um, I thought it said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Or, uh, Psalms from the New, just part of the New Testament. Little book about this big, this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane, I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive. And he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not, getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that 
and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. This guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a, a Bible, which had written in it a little note to me, uh, not very personal, but just, you know, like to show and so on. And then like five phone numbers for him and an email address if I wanted to get in touch. Now, I know there's no God, and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that. Uh, but I'll tell you, he was a very, very, very good man. And... Uh, that's really important. And with that kind of goodness, uh, it's okay to have that deep of a disagreement. I still think that religion does a lot of bad stuff, but man, that was a good man who gave me that book. That's all I wanted to say. Be passionate about doing good. He didn't get saved as a result of that encounter, but there's no rocks that he picked up as a result of that guy simply being passionate and zealous about being good and walking through whatever opportunity that he had. And by his attitudes and the actions and the way that he interacted with him, who knows, up until this point, he's never made a profession of faith. We don't know that he ever will. But what we do know is that he's not against Christianity at this point because of how this guy handled. Instead, he's like, I appreciate that guy for being that's just a kind of swell guy. There's something different about him, and I appreciate that. So, again, we're not doing this to get saved. That's not what we're doing. But you know the Christians, and you may have been one of those or acted like that in your past, where you're just a grump, and you've got an attitude, and you can't do anything. Nobody can do anything without you being critical of that person and being ugly about how they're driving and never happy. And I mean, that, re that, that waitress at the restaurant, she never gets your order right. And, you, you know, I've told you the story about uh, when I was pastoring in Houston that I used to go to McDonald's uh, early in the morning to get my breakfast before I got there. You know, now I'm old and I get fat really quick, so I can't do that anymore. But I used to do that every Sunday morning, you know, and this, this girl you know, she's kind of downcast. And I was like, hey, what's wrong with you? And she said, it's Sunday. And I'm thinking, oh, wow. You know, it's Sunday. She can't go to church. She can't be with her family. And I was like, really? What's so bad about Sunday? And she said, all the people come in after church and they are jerks, man. And I thought, wow, what a statement. We just finished worshiping God and we can't even let it change us enough that when we go into the restaurant right after that, it's different. We don't want to be that kind of people. Amen. We want to be a people that we make a difference in the world. And one of the ways is that principle number one is be passionate about doing good. The second principle that we see in this passage of scripture is don't be surprised if you're persecuted for being a Christian. It should not be something that surprises us. You know, Jesus came and he lived on this earth physically. And if there was anybody that was good through and through, it was Jesus Christ. I mean, he is goodness personified. And listen to what Luke writes about Jesus in Acts chapter 10. He says, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. I mean, that that's a good person right there. You know what I mean? Beside the fact that he's a savior, he's doing kind things for other people, but yet people still plotted against him. People still decided that he wasn't worth having on this earth. And so they ultimately, they killed him as a result of that. And before his crucifixion, he's warning his, his disciples. He said, don't be surprised if you experience some of the same things that I did. In Matthew chapter 10, he says, a disciple is not above his teacher, 
nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. But if they have called the head of the household, and this is what the Pharisees were accusing Jesus, said if they call the house or the head of the household Beelzebub or Satan, how much more will they malign the members of the household? So having a passion, being zealous for what is good, that doesn't necessarily mean that we won't experience any persecution because that's what Peter is trying to show us in verse 14. He says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness. You're out trying to do what's right. You're out trying to be moral. You're out trying to do the things that God would ask you to do. That phrase that you find there. But even if you should suffer. It literally means in the Greek text. Contrary to what you might expect. You're just out trying to show the love of Jesus in a practical way. And there's no way in the world anybody would ever be rude to you. Or mean with you. Or do something like that. He's saying contrary to what you might expect. You might possibly face These kind of things. And that's what we talked about a few weeks ago. Persecution, suffering, people being against what we stand for. That's just part of the salvation package. And we shouldn't be surprised when non-believers act that way. But what does he say there? He says, but even though you might suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are what? You're blessed. Part of this blessing, I think that's something we can never forget, was also what Jesus said in John chapter 16 and verse 33. He says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In this world you have tribulation, but take courage. No matter what you face, no matter what you go through, no matter how much or how bad people treat you, ultimately I have overcome the world. And so Jesus is promising us strength. He's promising us comfort. He's promising us the ability to be able to deal with whatever situation that we come into. And he says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, then he says in verse 14, at the end, do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. When somebody's attacking you, when somebody's bringing things and gets you, no matter what they're doing, do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. This is a direct, I believe, a direct reference to something that happened in the Old Testament. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Isaiah chapter 8. Remember, we don't have the New Testament at the time that, that this, this is the writing of the New Testament. Peter's writing this letter that ultimately we have in our New Testament. So they didn't have this. So their background was the Old Testament and the history and the things that are going on. And when he says, don't fear their intimidation or don't be troubled, this sounds a whole lot like an event that happened in Isaiah chapter 8. And so in Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 12, read there with me. It says, and you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. Now, the background of this passage of scripture, as many of you know, when Solomon died as the king of the unified country of Israel, there was kind of the civil unrest, civil war that happened. And so the 10 tribes minus Judah and Benjamin, they become the northern kingdom. And they're called Israel after Solomon. So when we read about the kings and the chronicles, you've got these two kingdoms. And the southern kingdom was known as Judah. And that's the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. So in this passage that we have here in the book of Isaiah, we have the the Assyrians are coming into power. And they're coming into the land to attack Syria and to attack Israel and to attack Judah. 
And so, so uh, Syria and Israel, the 10 tribes of Israel, they have gotten together and they've made this political pact that we're going to stand up against the Assyrians. So let's go get Judah to stand with us. And Judah, King Ahaz, that was the king of Judah at that time, he wasn't really interested in making an alliance with them because he knew that wasn't what God wanted them to do. So they told him, if you don't make an alliance with us, we're going to attack you. And so what King Ahaz decided to do, he said, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to circumvent their treaty and I'm going to go make a treaty with with Assyria since they're the world power and they're going to win anyway. I'm just going to make a treaty with them and I won't have to worry about it. Why is he trying to do these kind of things? What do you think's going through his mind right now? You got to understand the background. Who are we talking about? We're talking about the nation of Judah. Who, who, who is, who, why is that so important in biblical history? Jesus is coming through the tribe of Judah. The Messiah has been prophesied. I'm going to bring the Messiah. So is, is God going to let anything happen to the tribe of Judah? So what's driving King Ahaz to try to make these political treaties and things? The water around him is starting to get a little hot, isn't it? The water around him is starting to heat up a little bit, and he's not really what to do. And he starts to operate out of fear. And out of fear, he decides, well, I better make this political connection with this world power so that I'll be safe. And so Isaiah goes to him. He said, King, what in the world are you doing? You, you, you know that's an ungodly alliance. God would never want you to take that action. That's contrary to what he's told you to do, as I prophesied to you. And here in Isaiah chapter 8 is Isaiah's words to Ahaz as, Ahaz as he notices the water is beginning to heat up around him. And he's starting to be fearful. I don't know how they're going to treat me. I don't know what they're going to do to me. I don't know what they're going to say about me if I don't do what they're saying ought to do. And in Isaiah 8 and 12, he says, you are not to fear what the world fears. The king of Israel, the king of, of Syria, they're worrying about what the world is worrying about. They're worrying about these worlds. That's not what you should be worrying about. You're not the same as them. You, you have a different calling that's on your life. You are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy and he shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. So in light of this, remembering this story and remembering what was going on in the life of Ahaz, now Peter's writing to those of us that are being persecuted and those of us that are noticing the hot water that's around us. And he says, don't fear what the world fears. Don't fear what it is that they say you're lacking if you don't chase after the same things that they say that you ought to be chasing after. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Don't be shaken up. Don't be stirred. Don't allow your confidence in who you are in God to be questioned or to be shaken. You don't have to fear their intimidation because ultimately, as we read just a few moments ago, God says, I'm going to be with you no matter what you go through. I'm always going to be there with you because I have put into plan and practice the way in in which I want things to happen. So don't be surprised if you're persecuted. Be prepared for that. That's the second principle. The third principle is be devoted. Devoted to God's will for your life. Be devoted to God's will for your life. If you don't want to be impacted by the water heating up around you, the U.S. Code Section 4, talking about the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag and the manner in which it's to be delivered, this is what it says. The Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America 
and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all, should be rendered by standing at attention, facing the flag with the right hand over the heart. When not in uniform, men should remove any non-religious headdress with their right hand and hold it at the left shoulder with the hand being over the heart. Persons in uniform should remain silent, face the flag, and render the military salute. Members of the armed forces not in uniform and veterans may render the military salute in the manner provided for persons in uniform. Now, when I just read the, pres- the, the, the Pledge of Allegiance, how many of you felt a little uncomfortable that you were just sitting there? Anybody? Why? Because you've been trained from the very beginning. What are you supposed to do when we're saying the, the Pledge of Allegiance? You're supposed to stand up. You're supposed to put your hand over your heart and those kind of things. That's a picture of what Peter is teaching us here in verse 15. When he says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. He's saying, just like as a small child, you were taught and you understood. And it is just instinctive inside of you that when the Pledge of Allegiance starts, you jump to your feet. You put your hand over your heart. If you're in the military, you salute. You know exactly what you're supposed to be doing when it comes to the Pledge of Allegiance. As a Christian... You should know exactly what you ought to do when the water around you starts to heat up. There shouldn't be any hesitation. There shouldn't be any struggle whatsoever. It should just be automatic inside of you. When you begin to see the morality and you begin to see things going on around you, there should be no hesitation to distance yourself from that. When the persecution and the suffering and the trouble start, stand to attention before your Christ. Jump to your feet in front of your commander in chief. Remain devoted to what he's called you to do. Stand ready, watching, anticipating. Whatever it is that you ask me to do in this situation, I'm already at attention. I'm already paying attention. I'm already ready to take action on what it is. Don't allow yourself to be physically. Don't allow yourself to be emotionally And don't allow yourself to be spiritually distracted from staying connected with Christ and what it is that he would ask you to do in the situation that you're in, especially in light of the accusations and the innuendos and the things that possibly could come your way, even if they're unjust. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Expect the persecution to come. If you're going to live for the things of God, you should expect people to say things about you that aren't true. You should expect people to try to malign your character. You should expect people to try to do those things. They're looking for all of the rocks that they can possibly find to chunk in your direction. And what you have to do is just like we would do for the, for the Pledge of Allegiance. Is It's just instinctive inside of us that when we see that to make sure that we're choosing to submit to, we're choosing to trust in, we're choosing to be devoted to our God and the message that he's given us as a result of our salvation. And when we do that, when we're always on the alert, ready, remember our passage from a few years ago, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. Does anybody remember that? Be on the alert, stand firm in your faith, act like men, be strong at any moment, at any time, whenever the calling goes, but let everything that you do be done 
in love. That's the principle that, that he's trying to get across. And that leads us straight into principle number four is if you're ready, if you're prepared, if you're always on guard, you're, you're never allowing yourself not to be ready, then you'll be prepared to tell others why you live the way that you do. You'll be prepared to tell others why you live the way that you do. Remember what we said earlier, even the world recognizes and acknowledges when a Christian is living like a Christian. They may not understand it. They may not get the thrust of it, but there's just something about it that's good. There's something about it that's wholesome. There's something about it that is, that's just right. But even in the midst of that, there will be those that though they appreciate how you act, if you stand up for the truth, for instance, if you stand up for the sanctity of life, that it's not a woman's choice. If you stand up for the fact that, that homosexual marriages are against God's pattern that he's established in Scripture. If you stand up for the fact that Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one can have eternal life but through Jesus Christ. It, it doesn't matter how good that person is or how well that person is intending. It's still through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone that a person can have eternal life. As good as you're living, when you step into those conversations in the politically charged environment in which we live, you can expect people to challenge you for why you believe that. And it's not going to work to say, well, because that's what the pastor up at Oak Ridge Baptist Church says, okay? When God was, was working in my heart to go into the ministry, I, I began to realize I had a lot of answers that my daddy taught me. But I thought, you know, there's going to come this time that I can't stand before people and say, well, because that's what my daddy thought. I had to get into the word and figure out what does my heavenly daddy think about this, right? And what does his word have to say about these things? And at that moment, then, you have to be ready to offer an offense reasonably, knowing you're going to be called intolerant, knowing that you're going to be called homophobic, knowing that you're going to be called Islamophobic or whatever the, the title is that they're going to come up for you if you stand on the, on the things of Scripture. To combat this, you have to choose not to live bitter. You have to choose to live better, and that's to be able to concisely and in a very clear manner to be able to explain what it is that you, that you believe and you understand. How do we do that? Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and with reverence. I saw Tab back there a few moments ago. I appreciate Tab, and I appreciate Joel, and I appreciate Darlene, and, and Steve, and Kendall back in the back, and the copious amount of study and time that they've given last semester and this semester as they've been taking us through the apologetic study on Sunday night. We've been doing that because we embraced this verse as our theme for last year, and they took the mantle of that and said, hey, can we offer some teaching to our folks so that they'll have an understanding of how to offer a defense for the thing so, Tab, pass that along to everybody that's been doing that. I appreciate you guys and the, the way that you've been equipping our people. And so this phase indicates that believers are to constantly be in a state of preparedness, constantly in a state of readiness, constantly at the attention, just like we would for uh, the, the Pledge of Allegiance or the Star-Spangled Banner. We need to be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Well, what is the hope that's in us? Well, flip back in your Bibles really quick with me to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. We've already studied that hope that we have. But in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, I'm going to listen for you turning. 
Peter's already written written to us about us. He said, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. In the Bible, the word born again, saved, redeemed, justified. These are words oftentimes that are interchangeable. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be saved, to be born again. And that born again, that regeneration that's happened, it caused us to live in a living hope. A living hope, not a dead hope. The world lives in a dead hope. There's a lot of teachings out there that talk about, well, if you do enough good things or if you do some things, possibly there's a, there, there's a minuteness that you might be able to have eternal life. What kind of hope is that? I'm facing death. You, you know, I'm, I'm about to die. I've been, I've been diagnosed with, with some incurable disease and I don't have any assurance of the fact that I can have eternal life and life everlasting. How do I face that? How do I walk into that situation? But yet, Peter, uh, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, he said, I want you to know that we don't have to grieve as those who have no hope. Well, what hope do we have? We have a living hope. What's that living hope based on? It's based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because our Savior is living, we have the hope that we are living not physically forever, but we will live spiritually forever. This is what Paul talks to us about in Romans chapter 5. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith or having been born again, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom, Jesus Christ, also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we, we, we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And then he writes in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 5. For we through the spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. And so we have this hope that lives inside of us. This understanding that we have eternal life and we have the privilege to be able to God be in God's presence. And we need to be able to explain that to others. The reason that I can have joy in the midst of this sickness or the reason that I can have peace in the midst of this loss or the reason that I can I can face tomorrow. Right. The songs I I can face tomorrow because I know who holds my hand. Right. That's what we've always sung and talked about those things. People get it. They see it because we're living in a way that shows them the goodness of God inside of us. And now they're questioning us on, well, why are you living that way? Why do you say the things that you do? We give them an answer because of the hope it is that we have inside of us, which leads us then to the fifth and final principle that we find in this is be careful how you live your life. Be careful how you live your life. Look at verse 16. Keep a good conscience. Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered. In other words, if you're going to stand for the things of God and you're going to stand for things that are contrary to what the world is heating up around you. And it flies in the face of what somebody else says things are truth. They're going to try to find things to tear you down. They're going to try to find things to get you in trouble at work. So be very careful how you live your life so that. In the thing in which you are slandered, the things that they're bringing up against you, the things that they're, they're saying that you're doing, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, they're ultimately going to be the one that's going to be put to shame. In other words, do the investigation, do the inquiry, 
check into anything that you want me to do. Ultimately, that person is going to be shown to be the one that's not being truthful because my life is going to be lived in accordance with what God's word has to say. For it's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right, rather it is than doing what is wrong. So our conscience, and this is something that oftentimes people ask me. So, well, pastor, what's the difference between our conscience and the Holy Spirit living inside of us? How does that come together? I'm not going to go into great detail. Paul talks about this a lot to the church at Corinth, but I'll give you three statements tonight that kind of might help you. Our conscience is the moral and spiritual compass God placed inside every human being to direct us in the decision and choice-making process of life. Every person is given a conscience. That conscience has been put inside each and every person for the purpose of moral and as spiritual compass. Everybody has that, okay? You on the same page with me? Second statement. It is the divinely placed internal mechanism. This is the conscience. It's the divinely placed internal mechanism that either accuses... Or excuses a person acting as a means of conviction or affirmation. So we have this conscience and it is a moral compass. It's a spiritual compass that we naturally have inside of us. And it convicts us of doing things wrong. And it affirms us of when we're doing things right. Well, that sounds a whole lot like the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? All right. Here's the third statement. The conscience holds people to their highest perceived standard. The conscience holds a person to their highest perceived standard. Why is it that somebody can do some of the things that they do and it never bothers their conscience? Because of the high of the standard to which they have understood what truth and what wrong and what right is. Now, as Christians, what is our standard for what we understand to be right and wrong and the things we should do and we should not do? What's our standard? It's God's word. God's word. We ask Jesus to come into our heart. Jesus has chosen to give us his Bible so that we can understand him. But also, and it's the acronym that we use, right? Basic instructions before leaving earth, right? It's the standard by which we find all these things. So tonight we've talked about be zealous for what is good. Don't give in to those. So that's the standard by what. So now the Holy Spirit works through the Bible to show us and convict us and to give us the understanding of whether the things that we're doing in our life pleases God or whether the things in our life does not please God. And it's through our conscience that he works. It's through our conscience that he speaks to us and we go, oh, wait a second, that's not right for me to do. People ask me, especially my kids as they're growing up, well, dad, where in the Bible does it say I can't listen to music like this? Where in the Bible does it say I shouldn't do something like that? And sometimes the answer is what? It's not in the Bible. But when we apply God's word into our heart and we live by that standard, and then we bring this conviction into us. And James says to him that knoweth to do good and doesn't do it, what is it? It's sin. And that may be things that aren't directly covered in Scripture, but it's through the Bible that we've been studying. The Holy Spirit works on our conscience to help us to understand whether or not we ought to do those things, either affirming that or bringing conviction into that area. So obeying our conscience, it fills us with the peace and joy of the Lord and delivers us from eternal 
conflict. And so I love what the message is. I'm not a big message guy. Those of you that read the message, man, I love you to death. I don't read it a lot, but I love what it says about this. Listen to this verse. It says, keep a clear conscience before God so that when people throw mud at you, none of it will stick. They'll end up realizing that they're the ones who need a bath. I love that. I think that's exactly what he's talking about in this passage of scripture. He's saying, live your life in such a way that when people chunk rocks, it bounces off. When people chunk the mud, they sling the mud at you and those things, it never sticks. They can do all the investigating, all the things they want to do. It's just not going to happen because I'm living by these principles in life. So how do we keep from being lulled into complacency and indifference and becoming the proverbial frog in the pot, right? In other words, how do we keep from living bitter and choose to live better in a society that's ready to boil us for our faith and our practice? Well, Peter says, I'll give you five ways. Number one, be passionate about doing good. Number two, don't be surprised if you're persecuted. Number three, be devoted to God's will for your life. Number four, be prepared to tell others why you live the way you do. And number five, Be careful how you live your life. That's how you'll live better and not bitter, but you are the one that has to make the choice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time tonight and allowing us to be able to open your word. Father, we thank you that we live in a country that we have the privilege to be able to do that. And Father, I pray as we begin to feel the the heat of the changing culture around us, that we'll be a people that'll live by these principles, understanding it, it may be difficult, it may not be popular, It may be challenged, but I pray that we'll be uh, ready to defend our faith and understand why it is based on your word, but that we'll defend it uh, in a way that uh, the pins that we come in contact with, that, that they'll be able to say, but that person's good. There's something different about them. I pray as a result of our time together tonight that we'll not just be hearers of the word, but that we'll be doers. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen.